Sometimes I call myself just some dude who said some shit. I have a lot of ideas. When I hear them myself, they sound batshit crazy. But then I say them publicly and people are like, oh, that's kind of cool. I, I think we should do that. And then I'm like, okay, let me just keep saying some more stuff, right? Let me keep saying more and more batshit crazy things. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be learning from architect, educator, and researcher Seku Cook. Seku Cook will be the first to say he didn't invent the term or the theory of hip-hop architecture. He did, however, write the book on it. Literally. Last year, Bloomsbury published Seku's Hip-Hop Architecture. It's a manifesto and exploration that, true to its title and inspiration, is constructed more like a music album combined with expansive liner notes than a traditional academic tome. Seku remains one of hip-hop architecture's leading proponents and practitioners. Born and raised in Jamaica and educated at Cornell and Harvard, he currently serves as the director of the Master of Urban Design at UNC Charlotte. He also owns and operates Seku Cook Studio, which recently earned a 2022 Emerging Voices Award from the Architectural League of New York. Seku's recent projects include Grids and Griots, an architectural intervention commissioned for the 2021 Chicago Architecture Biennial, and the soon-to-be-built Syracuse Hip Hop Headquarters that will convert a derelict erstwhile dairy into event and performance venues and a variety of education and office spaces. Two of his designs are also now included on the Los Angeles Department of Building and Safety's list of 20 approved standard plans for additional dwelling units. Seku spoke to me from his studio in Charlotte. I asked him how he came upon the term hip-hop architecture and why it spoke to him. I was really lucky when I was at Cornell to be among uh, a group of really forward-thinking Black and Latino students at that time. And it was a rarity because in most predominantly white institutions, um, that had architecture programs, you'd be lucky if you had more than one or two Black people in a class. As a matter of fact, that's still the case um, most places today. You know, I taught at Syracuse for, for almost 10 years, and the only time I ever had two Black students in my class was when I bent the rules to actually get them into my studio. And I remember one year at Syracuse, we had 130 new students and only three of them identified as black. And, you know, this was just within the last few years. So um, this is a issue that's pervasive across the country. But at this magical moment in the mid nineties at Cornell, we had classes of six, seven, eight black students in a class of 65 to 70 students. So the demographics of our architecture cohort started to reflect more closely what the demographics of the population of the country are. And this is what it should be all across the board in almost any discipline. 
that in order to see what the true excellence is and the true diversity is of thought and of approach in any discipline, we need to include as many people at the table as are actually in the country. So that allowed different kinds of conversations to start to happen within our class. If you're just the only one or one of two, then you're not really forming community. You may or may not know the other Black person in the class above you or below you. But when there's five or six or seven or eight, then now there's uh, more opportunity for cross-pollination of ideas, more socializing amongst people who are starting to approach architecture from a different point of view. And so when I came into Cornell a year before, Nathan Williams, Nate Williams, had done a whole thesis project on hip-hop architecture. So he had graduated a year before I even got to Cornell, but the ideas around hip-hop architecture were being talked about by everyone. And it set a, a new standard for how people from non-Western traditional backgrounds would approach their thesis projects in the fifth year of their bachelor's degree. So that's where a lot of this change started to happen. That's where a lot of these ideas were planted. This is where the, the true roots of hip-hop architecture came. At the time, the idea of hip-hop architecture just sounded like something cool and interesting that I may not have enough connection to, to really explore. But what was seeded in that moment was the idea that different perspectives on architecture could come to the forefront, that I could actually interrogate my own cultural heritage to find a way to produce architecture. I was following the lead of many other people who went along that same path. It became the norm that we would do some kind of project reflecting on our own cultural identity, where we're from, what that meant to be Black in that place that we were from. Um, I remember Amanda Williams, her, her thesis was about her growing up in Chicago and the landscape of Blackness in Chicago and first exploring the use of collage within how she made models and how she drew and how she produced architecture in her thesis project. My sister, Nina Cook-John, she did her thesis project about urban porches that could happen in between these leftover spaces in immigrant communities in the Bronx and in Brooklyn and in Queens. And so I did a project that was using different graphic and video techniques to interrogate the history of colonialism in Jamaica. That was a, a kind of fun project for me. So it wasn't really embedded in hip hop architecture or directly influenced by hip hop architecture, but it was of a similar vein. So it was not until about 12 or 13 years later, when I went back to grad school, that the idea started to come back. And it was seeded by this interview that Kanye West recorded with the British radio host Zane Lowe when he was talking about being influenced by architects and that he was working with five architects at a time and that he wants to be invested in the design community. And I thought it was incredibly fascinating. And at the time, the blowback from the architecture community 
was how dare Kanye say anything about architecture? <laughs> you know, what does he know? He needs to get training before he goes and do, and designs anything. And this is another example of somebody who's rich and powerful crossing lanes and stepping outside of their limits of what they're capable of doing. That was, you know, quite honestly, steeped in racism and in bias about who Kanye West is and what he can do, um, which others pointed out at the time. My take on it was, this is really powerful and amazing. This is an opportunity. If Kanye West actually starts talking publicly more and more often about architecture, this might be the key to unlocking a whole new generation of black and brown architects on the scene. This is something that could solve a problem, an issue that's been around, we've been talking about for 40 or 50 years at the time. So how do we get more young black kids interested in applying for architecture programs? So the first published piece that I, I ever wrote was called Keep Talking Kanye. <laughs> and that was published on Arc Daily, which is the number one architecture blog in the archi blogosphere. Oh, what was the reaction? The reaction was incredibly positive. It, it was actually overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I didn't expect it to reach as many people or touch as many people and actually influence you know, Kanye himself. He actually read it and um, along with some of the other efforts that we made within our organization at Harvard at the time, we uh, were able to invite him to, to the Graduate School of Design, to the GSD, to come and talk with us and meet with us. So it was incredible. Which must, I surely must have been the best attended lecture ever at the <laughs> architecture school. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it kind of got blown out of proportion into a lecture, but it wasn't really a lecture. It was him, he kind of came in privately under cover of night and met with a few of us in a back room and uh, had a really deep, insightful conversation about his work and about architecture and design. I'm reluctant to ask you, of course, to define hip hop architecture because you've said yourself, you like hip hop culture itself. It doesn't look like any one thing. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm wondering one way to talk about it maybe is to if you could describe a product of yours that you kind of think exemplifies that ethos. Yeah, so um, this might sound a bit contradictory to what I said before, where I said, you know, hip hop was easier to define than architecture. And that's more about the universally accepted definition of what hip hop is. But hip hop culture is something that's constantly redefining itself. It's constantly innovating and changing. One day, a denim suit could be hip-hop, and then the next day, wearing a sweater vest is hip-hop, and the next day, wearing all black and a big gold chain is hip-hop. It's always, uh, and you know, the music, the art, the entire culture is always looking for what's next and how to reshape and redefine itself. So it's hard to pin down. And the reason it, that happens is once something can be named, it can be owned. And this is a colonialist idea. This is basics of colonialism, that we are going to name something, we're going to put a flag on it, and then we're going to call it what we want to call it. And that's a way that we can own it. 
And sell it. And sell it, exactly. <laughs> so commodification is not at all detangled from colonialism. So in this case, hip-hop is constantly redefining itself in order to maintain its own value. So it commodifies itself. It always is retaining its own commodification. Oh, so the market always has to catch up with it. Exactly, exactly. And so this is partially why hip-hop architecture is not something that I want to be defined because everyone wants to put it into a nice, pretty little box. They want to say, here are all the five different rules that I have to follow. This is the lines of the roof lines that I need to follow. This is the size of windows I need to have. This is the material and color and texture I need to use. And then it's going to be hip hop architecture. And then once I do that, then if I check all these boxes, no matter what my cultural identity is, no matter what my background is, no matter what I know about hip hop culture, I can then practice hip hop architecture. And, and I'm not exaggerating this. This is actually what is happening now. I've been asked this directly by people of all backgrounds about how do we actually practice hip hop architecture? What are the rules? What does it look like? How do I own it? And I say, you can't own it. It's not something for you. It's something that's going to come authentically from the people who are self-identified as being immersed in hip hop culture or are trying to find an outlet for their own cultural creativity through hip hop. So it's not something that's going to be defined or going to be locked into a very specific set of rules or limitations. The definition that ends up showing up in the book is that hip hop architecture is hip hop culture in built form. That's a short enough definition for people to, you know, stop asking. <laughs> <laughs> and also for them to kind of understand, but it's also fuzzy enough to not fully define it. Because what does hip hop culture in built form look like? And the answer is it can look like many things. It can look like almost anything. What's most important is that the process that it's gone through is a truly authentic process that is linked to hip hop culture in a real way. And that the intentions of the person or the people who are authoring the work are in alignment with the, the overall intentions of any other hip hop product, be it graffiti or b-boying or emceeing or DJing or art or, or literature or poetry or theater or any other hip hop product. So it's interesting when you... Because you're in academia, but you also have your own studio and your own clients. Mm -hmm. So how do you sell yourself and your art and your constructions if you specifically don't want it to be overly definable? Yeah, well, sometimes I call myself just some dude who said some shit. I have a lot of ideas. When I hear them myself, they sound batshit crazy. But then I say them publicly and people are like, oh, that's kind of cool. I, I think we should do that. And then I'm like, okay, let me just keep saying some more stuff, right? Let me keep saying more and more batshit crazy things. That basically brings me into the public eye in a very unique way. Being in academia, being an academic, being an author, being a lecturer, being a public speaker 
gives me a platform for all of my ideas. And that's something that's been groomed and has evolved over the years. And it's a pretty public platform right now. But it allows me to seed a lot of these ideas and test them out and see what the public response is to them. I'm also able to work with students who are always going to be the guinea pigs of any of these ideas. The studio or the classroom is the ultimate laboratory of where ideas are incubated and uh, developed. So that is a really powerful place to attract clients to these set of ideas. And this set of ideas is what clients get attracted to. So I have to ask, like, what what batshit crazy thing that you said actually ended up being made? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, so when I, when I was doing the exhibition at the Center for Architecture in New York City, you know, the Center for Architecture, that building is a functioning office building. They did some six-figure, high six-figure or seven-figure renovation of it a few years before that. And then I said, well, I want to have a graffiti artist come in here and spray paint all the walls. And they're like, okay. And then I said, well, I want to take a 40-foot shipping container, chop it up and hang it from the walls. And they said, okay, <laughs> all right, I guess we can start to <laughs> rock and roll now, you know? And then even, you know, some of the projects that I'm working on right now, which aren't really fully for public consumption as yet, but they're really, really exciting. I'm promoting a group of Black residents in Western North Carolina and giving them the idea that they can become their own developers and develop a project in a way that they can purchase and live in the units, but still benefit from all of the government subsidies that will actually make it affordable. Or in Washington, D.C., where we'll be turning a low-income housing building where people are being displaced and transforming that building into a publicly accessible artist and entrepreneurial space for the residents and for the public in the interim between when it's going to be vacated and when it gets demolished for something else to be built. And every time, you know, when I'm in these rooms or in these meetings, I keep waiting for someone to tell me that this is a really stupid idea. <laughs> um, you should, like, why are we paying you? You should stop and just go do something else. But everybody seems to think that what I'm saying is actually valuable and worthwhile. And now I'm actually starting to believe in a lot of it and believe that it can actually elicit some real change. So let's talk about that change. If in your kind of utopia, if more, uh, if there were more a diverse field of architects mm -hmm. kind of creating built environments through the authentic precepts of hip hop architecture, mm -hmm. what would our neighborhoods potentially feel like? How would our cities be different? <laughs> They'd be very scary for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people would be very, very uncomfortable, but actually a lot of people would, once they get over their initial shock or judgment or discomfort, would actually see that they're living in a space that's much more equitable and much more socially aware and much more free 
free to have individual expression while maintaining collective order and progress. I think the spaces and environments and urban conditions that get designed through this philosophy are ones that are empowering individual neighborhoods, giving people agency to control and shape their own spaces. And this is something that rarely ever happens. And in the Black community especially, never happens. The project that I did for the MoMA show, Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America, was based on the idea that Black people in this country have always been subjugated to being placed or displaced. It's always saying, this is where you're going to live until this area becomes valuable to us in one way or another for a highway or an infrastructure project, or the market values start to get higher and higher, then now we'll have to displace you and put you somewhere else. And it happens over and over again. So imagine people actually dictating where they can live and how they can live and what that's going to look like, what it's going to be shaped like. That's the idea of all of this, that it's taken into consideration all of the things that people actually need to live, not just a roof over their their heads, but a cultural environment that affords equal exchange of, of ideas and vibrancy and all of that good stuff. I want to talk about money <laughs> sure. because we, we touched on this earlier. Hip hop has such a complicated relationship with capitalism because so much money is made off of it. Uh-huh. And yet, as you said, it is a movement that always comes up from below, from the people. Yes. And it's ever-changing. Likewise, architecture involves a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like buying a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if, does the framework of hip-hop architecture and this kind of accessibility and participation that you're envisioning, how does it take into account money and power. So one of the chapters or sections in my book is on commodity, and it addresses this issue uh, straightforward. So it starts out with the premise that something has to be owned in order to be commodified. And it also more deeply investigates the relationship between um, hip hop and capitalism, and that Hip-hop is incredibly aware of capitalism and uses it to its own advantage. And this is the biggest win for hip-hop culture is that in, in its ability to break the mold of typical capitalist processes, that each of these structures was designed in order to keep these very people down and subservient, but they found a way to succeed within that structure right? Which is incredibly powerful. Obviously, at first, they were still being taken advantage of by record companies and deals. And even the artists were, you know, in galleries, all of the money was trickling up to the same white men who control all of the money in each of these industries. But then you had, you know, entrepreneurial people like Russell Simmons, or Jay-Z, or Jermaine Dupree, or Master P, who figured out a way to make this a much bigger industry, have a much larger chunk of all the money being made off of them 
to create these larger empires of success and money. When we relate that back to architecture now, this is the biggest gap that I'm, I'm really trying to fill in. The distance between the hip hop community and the money that's made primarily by rap artists that doesn't seem to make its way into the architectural community. Some of it makes its way into the built environment for them building houses or schools or investing in the, the communities that they come from. I know Kendrick Lamar invests heavily in Compton and others do similarly in their communities where they come from. But they're, they seem to be generally unaware that Black architects exist. You know, we're only 2% of or less than of the population of architects in the country, of licensed architects in the country. But we're not being sought out at the same level to produce really meaningful architectural works that are for people in that hip-hop environment because it's still part of the culture to want the best, to have the best. And the best is still seen as this European norm that, you know, you're going you're gonna to be dressing in Fendi or Gucci or, or Yves Saint Laurent, like all these, you know, white designers. Tommy Hilfiger was a big design label in the 90s and had some backlash because he said he didn't really design his clothes for the black community or for the hip hop community. And then, you know, if you ever watch MTV Cribs, you'll see that the, the houses that a lot of these rappers, especially the younger ones coming up, lived in, it was always these big palatial mansions that were empty, had nothing in them. Yeah, and, and usually were, with some kind of Doric column arrangement in exactly, the front, right? Exactly, yeah. and just terrible. Like have like no interest, no kind of real progressive detail, no relationship to their lived experience. And then they spend the second half of the show looking at the garage and all the cars that they bought. So the, there's a huge disconnect between the idea of architecture that black architects can be producing and the actual lived experience of these. Uh, hip-hop artists that they could actually have work and spaces and environments that reflect their own cultural identity. That's a big gap that I haven't reached yet. There's a longer version of this interview at uncsa.edu slash art restart. I recommend it because there you could read about Seku's fuck you, pay me attitude that I think ought to be emblazoned on t-shirts for all artists. If Seku Cook Studio ever has a gift shop, I'm just saying. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>